amen to that. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. As you do, if you would open your copies of God's Word up to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses today, but to set that up, we really need to look back to chapter 1 just a bit. In chapter 1, towards the close, Paul addressed the fundamental difference between this group of false teachers that was plaguing this young church in Crete. He addressed them very sharply, very strongly, basically said this needs to be shut down because they are so dangerous to this young church. And last week, the the passage that closed chapter 1 revealed to us why. Why these false teachers were such a serious threat. These false teachers were teaching, and again, we don't know a lot, all the details, all the ins and outs. Paul doesn't go into it. But we know that they taught that your spiritual cleanness or your rightness before God was predicated on what you do or don't do. And then they offered their own ways of achieving that. Right? They said, you must do this, and then you will be clean. Or don't do this, and you will be clean. That was the heart of their theology and the teaching that they were bringing to bear on the church of Crete. And Paul mentions no words. He said that this is bankrupt theology. It was completely unable to deliver what it promised. Moreover, he says that by teaching and practicing this particular theology, these false teachers had made themselves incapable, completely incapable, unfit for anything good. That's how deeply this theology undermined their life and undermined the truth of the gospel. All of their efforts, no matter how zealous, no matter how passionate, no matter how disciplined they were, were wasted and futile because they could not do what they promised. Now the gospel, on the other hand, the gospel that Paul brought and preached there, the gospel that Titus is preaching there, the gospel that the elders he's establishing is to preach there, the gospel that's to be guarded and defended and proclaimed, it says something entirely different. It says that we are made clean, that our status is made right before God, wholly and completely by God's work, apart from our own. That we can contribute nothing to washing ourselves and making ourselves clean. And that this is the only thing that actually makes us fit to do anything good. In other words, we can't do anything to make ourselves clean. We have to be made clean by him before we are able to do anything that is actually good. Now, that begs the question, so what is it good for us to do? What is it good for us to do? Paul says that the underlying theology of the false teachers made it impossible for them to do anything good. And the the implication is that the true theology of the gospel, the fact that we are washed clean, holy by the work of God, that actually does enable us to do something good. But what is that? What is good for us to do? We've been given all we need before God as a gift of grace. So it's not going to be anything that, that merits us anything before God. This gives us incredible freedom. But what should we do with that freedom? What should we do with that freedom? Now that we are safe in Christ, we have all that we need before him, what do we do? This is an important question. This is a question that we all wrestle with at different times in our lives. How many of you have not felt 
that kind of aimless feeling where you're going through your days, you're getting things done, and you're just kind of surviving, and you're kind of wondering, like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? I'm spending my life day after day, but is what I'm spending it on, does it even matter? Is this just a waste? Be shocked if there's somebody who hasn't felt that at one point or another. I certainly have. But we, our life is just running. We are like a hose with the knob broken off. It's, it's flowing. The water's coming. There's no turning it off. The only question is, what are you pouring it into? Right? We can't pause this. So thankfully, we're not left to sort this out on our own, the way the false teachers did. The false teachers made up an idea of good, and they sold it. They sold it to the Cretans. Paul does not do that. Paul tells us that God has revealed to us what's good. He has revealed to us what the gospel now calls the shape of a life that the gospel makes. What does a life downstream from the finished work of Jesus look like? And scripture doesn't leave us to chase after fad, after fad, after fad, of which there are no limit. Right? You can find something new every month to throw yourself after that promises great things. But we're not left to that. We're not left to swing back and forth with the world's ever-changing definitions of what is good. All right? He gives it to us right here in Titus 2, 1 through 10. Let's read. This is Paul speaking to Titus. He says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let me pray for the Lord's help for us this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that you have not left us to our own devices to try to sort out what is good for us, what is worth spending our lives on, but you have given that to us in your word, and that is a gift. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would give us ears to hear it and hearts that would be softened to it. We get told lots of things are good from lots of other places. There's an endless line of different strands of thinking in the world that point us to something that is good. There are all sorts of religious strands that point us to something that is good. Uh, But Lord, we need yours uh, because you alone get to define good. You alone get to determine what is good because you have made all things. You are the standard. You are the bar that decides what is good. So we thank you for this gift. We thank you for not leaving us to wander. And we pray that you would help us to understand it. We pray that you would help us to take it and that you would shape our hearts with it this morning by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. So guys, just to let you guys know where we're going, I'm actually going to preach this passage twice, um, this week and next week, because there's two different ways I want to do it, uh, and I couldn't do it all in one. Today, what I want to do is I want to kind of 
take a big picture kind of view. Because when you get into things like this, a list like this, where it's you do this, you do this, you do this, it's very easy to just kind of get sucked down into the weeds and read it just like that. Read it as this checklist. You check in when it's your turn, you listen to some stuff, and then you check out when it's everybody else's stuff, and you've got your list and that's it. But that's, there's more to this, more, more to it than that, right? There's, an, there's actually some commonalities and some, some themes that encapture all of this. And by looking at those first, we're going to make much more sense of the particulars next week. So next week, I'm going to dive into and go into all the little details of this. But this week, I want to show you some common threads and some common themes. I want to show you the big picture of what Paul is calling Titus to teach the church here, what he's calling the church to pursue and to do, and what this picture of the good is. Does that make sense? So this week's the big picture. Next week, we'll get granular and get into the details. Right, and what we're going to see this week, the big picture of what Paul is saying here is that a life that fits with the gospel, the life that naturally flows downstream from the gospel, it's appropriate from the gospel, is one of selflessness. It's one of selflessness. And it's selflessness for the building up of the church and for its witness to the world. Selflessness for the building up of the church and its witness to the world. Let's see how we see that. All right, so the first thing Paul says, he's just gotten done talking about the false teachers who preach a false doctrine, a false theology that leads to them doing no practical good. And so this passage starts with a strong um, contradiction, a but, hard but. Says, Titus, you do something different, right? You are not to be like them in any way. You do something different. And you teach what accords with sound doctrine. What accords with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine means whole. The word that that comes from is the same word we use for like hygiene, right? It's the same, same root. So the idea is something that's healthy, right? Something that's healthy, put together, clean, not corrupted, right? So what Paul is saying is like, hey, Timothy, you need to teach sound doctrine and also what flows from it. Also what comes out of that doctrine. This is, this is very important, right? Christianity at its core is about what we believe. Christianity at its core is about what we believe, not about what we do, first and foremost. It's fundamentally about what we believe. But our lives should fit that belief, right? What we do, and this is true of anybody, what you do flows downstream of what you believe. It always does. What you do flows downstream. It tells you th what you believe about what is true and what is good. This is the case for anybody, right? We can't help but function like this. If, we, if those two things are incoherent for any law, we can't live in that kind of bipolar kind of place. One's going to move to line up. When one is off, the other is going to follow in some way. So what Paul is saying, he's not saying, okay, now just do practical stuff, right? The passage we're going to talk about is very practical. It's all about stuff you do. But he's grounding it in this theological foundation, Right, Titus, you have to give them sound doctrine, but you also have to show them how that sound doctrine now plays out in their lives. Right? Your understanding of doctrine isn't really full and complete until you understand how it affects you, right? how it plays out, how it shapes your life in the everyday as you live. Right? And until we don't know that, we don't really know it. And that's what Paul is encouraging Titus to do here. Right? Give them sound doctrine, but you have to connect it to what they're doing Monday through Saturday, right? You have to show them 
how this changes everything and how everything in their lives changes and shifts because of the reality of what, who Christ is and what he's done. So that's his call to Titus. And then we've got this long list of things, these long lists of, of, of things that Paul says the church should be. He breaks it down into different, different demographic categories. But it's interesting, if you look at all these different things, there is a very significant common thread through all of it. There's a lot of distinctions. A lot of people get called to different things. But there's a very obvious common thread that, that applies to pretty much everybody. We're going to look at the diversity next week, but this week... I want to make sure we see this and see this well, that this common thread is a selflessness. A selflessness. And this makes even more sense that Paul would emphasize this, not just because of the nature of the gospel, but because of the nature of what the false teachers have been offering to the church in contrast and the way it's been corrupting the gospel. A life of selflessness could not be any more different than what these false teachers lived and what they taught. Their teaching was self-generated. It's, it's the doctrines of men. It's things they came up with. Came from them. And it's self-serving. Paul says they, they were doing it for selfish gain. Unseemly gain, right? They came up with it. It's for their gain. And what was it focused around, right? We talked about before how it had this Gnostic influence, this idea that you need to kind of search inside yourself for this divine spark and find this esoteric knowledge that you hold on to for salvation, right? Paul talks about how they were committed to the commands of men and Jewish myths that focused them on ritual spiritual actions as a way to be clean before God. All of these different threads that kind of shaped and influenced this teaching, they all pointed people in on themselves. They all made you incredibly introspective because the way to be clean, the way to be right, what you pursued as good was all about you. It was about making yourself clean, making yourself right, getting this knowledge for you. The whole thing, the whole system, from the teaching to what the teachers are doing with it to what they're pointing people to, all revolves around the self. So not only was this in contrast to the false teachers, but it was also in direct contrast with the broader culture in Crete. Cretan culture was famous, probably better to say infamous, infamously corrupt. All right? They were famous for their culture of exploitation and indulgence, the way that they used people, lied to people for their own gain. As Paul quoted their, their own sage, Epimenides, and said that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul said, yeah, that fits. That's, that's right. That's what they are. They were known for this kind of incredibly self-centered, almost narcissistic focus on their own advancement. And who cares about anybody else? Crete was a dog-eat-dog -dog world that gladly used other people to satisfy its own appetites. So this way of living that the false teachers was promoting, that was all self-focused, self-centered, revolved around you as the center of the universe, fit like a glove with Cretan culture. It makes sense. It's a very natural fit. And it fit with the... But it is not in accord with sound doctrine in the gospel of Jesus Christ in any way. Our, the very foundations 
of what we believe rest on something entirely contradictory to this. Entirely contradictory to this. And I think the best place to see this is in Philippians 2. It's a long passage, but it's worth reading. Philippians 2 says this. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi, another church. But we've got the same author, and this is what he says. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Listen as he goes on. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I'll pause there real quick. So Paul says, hey, look, church, if, if God is at work at you at all, if you have trusted Christ at all, the one thing, the thing that should characterize you, right, is this selflessness, this humility towards each other, this seeking the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That should mark you. That should be a defining characteristic of you. And then he goes on to explain why when we pick up in verse 5. Why is that thing, why is that so central to who we are as Christians, as the church? Well, it flows down from our head, Jesus Christ. In verse 5 it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. That's where it comes from. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There is no salvation, there is no redemption for us, apart from humility. Apart from the selflessness of Jesus. It is so hard for us to even wrap our heads around the degree of condescension that took place for for the God of the universe to leave glory where he lacked nothing and to put on the frailty of humanity. And not just the frailty of humanity, that alone would be enough, but the frailty and and to live in a sin-cursed world in that frailty, to cloak his divinity in the frailty of us, and then to live in this place where there's so much evil and so much suffering and so much brokenness. He did not have to do any of this. None of this was required of him. We have to go through this. We deserve it. We caused it. He was not obligated to do this by anyone but himself within the Trinity before eternity passed where he committed himself to do this. We are saved. We have the opportunity of redemption because Jesus Christ put on humility. Because he was selfless for us. And Paul says that the character and nature of our Savior 
above everything else, ought to be what colors the character and nature of his church. He is our head. Everything should follow that lead. In light of this, right, in light of what we see in Christ, in light of how we saw him operate here, in light of the death we saw him voluntarily submit himself to for our behalf, it should be no surprise that dying to self for the good of others is held out as what the church ought to be trained in, is what the church ought to throw herself into as good. And we see it throughout this passage. Over and over again, there are calls to self-control, submission, sober-mindedness. These are all words that fall within this category of, of dying to self, right? You are restraining your pursuit of your desires, of your actions. You are yielding to somebody else's authority rather than to what you want to do. You are controlling your mind rather than letting it run wherever it wants to. These are all terms that talk about this reality of you dying to your own impulses and your selfish desires for the sake of the good of others. And in case we miss it, through those whole ten verses in the next passage, in Titus 2, 11 through 12, Paul leaves no doubt. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. At the very core of the good that we are to pursue as Christians and as the church is a dying to self for the good of others. In church, we have to see how much this flies in the face of our culture, right? Our culture's ethos is exactly the opposite of this. Our culture's ethos is that the highest good is to express and follow your impulses and desires, whatever they may be. We've talked about this a couple of times, this idea of expressive individualism that kind of colors our society. That this is the polar opposite of this, that good is expressing whatever you feel, regardless of its effect on anybody else. That is the height of good. And what Paul says is good, what Paul holds out as God's answer to the question of what is good could not be more different. Our culture glorifies rebellion and it derides things like submission as weakness. But frankly, there's nothing brave or courageous or virtuous about satisfying your appetites and rebelling against authority. That's easy. It's just what we do. That takes no work. That takes no effort. Just let yourself go, and that's what happens. So we hold out as brave and courageous and virtuous things that are not at all. It's easy. It's what we default to. That's where gravity pulls us in our flesh. And yet for us to align with those things, for us to declare those as good and live in such a way that we say those things are good is to make a mockery of our Savior. It's to make a mockery of our Savior and his redeeming work, which existed because of his humility and his submission to his Father, his selflessness. There are so many things we can say about the Christian life. This passage does not contain all of them at all. But this one lies right at its heart. The life that befits the gospel, that flows downstream from the gospel, 
is one that dies to self for the good of others. Church, this is something that we ought to be known for. This is something that Christians, that churches ought to be known for. How many times is, is that, would that be our reputation in the world? Oh, those Christians over there, they're humble. Those Christians over there, they're, very, they're, they're so respectful of authorities. Those Christians over there, they are so restrained in their passions. Is that what we're known for as Christians? I would contend that Paul says we ought to be. That this ought to be at the very heart of what flows out of us because of the gospel. It's important to realize that this selflessness that Paul is calling us to is not asceticism. Big fancy word, but that's basically this idea that you should restrain and not satisfy desires for the purpose of that alone, right? You You just withhold things from yourself and that that alone by itself is virtuous. That is not what Paul is saying at all, right? There's no inherent virtue in denying yourself unless something's explicitly sinful. The selflessness that Paul is talking about this dying to self that we're speaking about here, it, ha- it connects to something else that is deeply related. And that is that the Christian life is a corporate life, not an individual life. This dying to self, this humility, this submission, this self-control that we are called to have, it is expressly for the purpose of benefiting others. Right? That's why we do it. We restrain ourselves. We put ourselves in check. We don't do what we feel like because instead we choose to love and care for others. And we do that because we have been saved into a body. We are not a bunch of individuals running around. We are part of a whole. The Christian life is a corporate life. Now when we hear corporate, the first thing that pops into my head when I hear corporate is business, which is not the thing we're going for here, right? But that word for business comes from the same root of what we're trying to get at. Corporate, it refers to body, right? That's where the root comes from. You're talking about a business, you're talking about this conglomeration of people and things that operate as one entity. And that's what we're talking about with the church. The church is the body of Christ. It is this group of people that operates now as a whole, not as a collection of individuals. This is so vital to understand. You will get the Christian life completely wrong if you do not understand the church in this way. That the Christian life is a communal thing. It is not an I activity, it is a we activity. Christ did not come to save a bunch of autonomous, independent, self-sufficient people. He saved you into a body, into a family. Every picture he uses to describe the church is this tightly bound unity. He uses a building. He uses a body. He uses a family. Everything is a collective. And that is no accident. You have been saved into a body that needs you, and you need it, regardless of how you feel about it. This is, again, in direct opposition to the life promoted by the false teachers that were plaguing Crete. Right? They had this 
these different threads were so individually focused, right? To the point where Paul says that their teaching was upsetting households. It was fracturing even families in the church because of its individual emphases. So many of the things that some of the early Gnostic stuff and some of the Jewish traditions did, they were divisive. They split up normal relationships and things because of what they called things out. Some even called for like the abandonment of marriage, called for people to leave their marriages in order to be spiritual. Things to that extent were some of the things that colored some of these movements that affected these teachers. So this again flies in the face of what has been sold to the Cretan church by these false teachers. And I would say that this individualism is even more prevalent in our culture. Right? In, individualism is so thick in the post-enlightenment West, especially here in America, that we don't even realize how deep it runs in our veins. It is the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. It affects everything about how we think about things. We really can't overstate how inherent it is to us. And this has undeniably, undeniably colored our understanding of the church as Americans. We tend to see the church as this group of individual Christians rather than a body. Right? It's a collection of individuals rather than a whole. We see the Christian life is primarily an individual endeavor, right? It's me and Jesus out here doing this thing. And that makes the church a, a vendor of spiritual goods and services that might be helpful for you, right? If it advances you along your path. But that's its usefulness, right? Its usefulness is what it can do for you to keep you pressing along. But it's you and your private thing with Jesus that is at the heart of it. The church is kind of incidental. It might be helpful if you find a good enough one that does things well enough. You can take advantage of it if they're offering something that will make you feel like you're advancing more. But Paul here paints in a radically different picture of the church. And he does it throughout the New Testament. It's not just here. He communicates about the church here as a household of God. The way that this passage is written, it's written in the form of a Roman household code. We'll talk about this more next week. It's going to make a lot more sense of the details, right? These were common. These weren't just a Christian thing. This was kind of guidelines for how a Roman household would function. And Paul takes it, he uses a lot of the existing stuff, but then he changes it, he Christianizes it in a lot of ways. But even just the way, the form that he's writing in communicates that this, he's writing to a church that functions like a family. And as we're going to see next week, families then were very, very tight-knit. They were much more codependent on each other than perhaps our American understanding of the family is. The economy revolved around the family. So many other things revolved around the family that, that don't even just register with us on the surface when we hear that picture in America. So the church is meant to function as a family where all that you have and all that you are is brought to bear for the good of the family. Everybody has a role. Everybody has a place. Everybody contributes and does things because you are part of this whole. And every contribution that moves the whole forward is good for you as well. You are part of a unit. And just as you are doing this, so are others. All the others are in this same place. Others who occupy different roles than you and who bring different things to the table. No one in Paul's day would have understood life outside of a family structure like this. It'd be foreign 
This is one of the things that I learned a lot about when I was in the Middle East in my pre-pastoring days, right? Their idea of the family structure is much more like this. And everything revolves around the family, your business, your, the, the economy, your security, everything is tied to your family. And when I was talking to guys about the gospel over there, what Jesus talked about when he said, talked about losing your father, mother, brother, losing your family for the sake of the gospel, that hit them in a totally different way than it does us. Not just because it would have really happened if they trusted Christ because of you know, where they were at, but also because that meant they were cut off from basically society. They had no place left in that world apart, apart from the family. And that's something that's very, very hard for us to wrap around, our minds around, because our culture is so different. But in the Roman world, nobody would have had an idea of, of you functioning in the world outside of this, this more collective unit of the family, of the household. And they would have seen being free from that, not as freedom, but impoverishment. Impoverishment. If you did not have a household, you were impoverished. You were among the lowest rungs of society because you were alone and isolated. And you had none of the security and help that came with having a community that you were actually bonded to. Right? And that is, the, that is what the church is meant to be. Right? And that is what you lose when you have this hyper-individual understanding of the Christian life. It's you out there on your own. And that is a bad place to be. That is not what you are designed for. You are vulnerable and weak and you are not self-sufficient no matter how you feel. Think about, man, just the pictures that God uses for the church throughout Scripture. They all show us this. What does he call us? He calls us sheep, right? How does a sheep by itself wandering under the wild, how does that how does that go? Any ideas? It ends with dinner. Always. Sheep are dumb. They cannot operate on their own. They don't, they don't exist in the wild. They can't function like that. Right? Their safety and everything comes from part of being a flock with a shepherd, having all this, this communal stuff around them. Everything God tells us about the Christian life has these colors and these notes and these overtones. We can't escape it if our eyes are open. Right? And we see this play out in this passage. We'll see in more detail next week, but some of this is captured in what we already talked about in this emphasis on submission and self-control. These are relational categories. These are things that you do when you are connected to another person. But our passage is littered with the idea of, of contributing and receiving from one another, of being in this bond where you need other people and they need you. It talks about teaching from Titus and the older women to the younger women. It talks about modeling, you know, showing what this looks like for others in the body. It talks, when it talks about bond servants, it talks about being well-pleasing to those in authority, which would have been part of the same household. All of these terms show this interconnectedness, this interconnectedness, the fact that I need you and you need me. And that is how it is designed to function. All of this implies that our efforts in the Christian life are not primarily about us, but about building up the body as a whole. 
Again, I want to take you to another passage that, that corroborates this. It's another lengthy one, but again, it is so rich. This one's from Ephesians 4. And I think it captures this reality so well and so beautifully. Ephesians 4 says this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. All right, so here we've got a very similar thing going on in Ephesians as it was going on in Titus. Paul is explaining, hey, talk, teach them what accords with good doctrine. Teach them what accords with good theology. Now, Paul here in Ephesians, the church of Ephesus, he's saying, okay, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. What, you know, what oh, Act in the way that flows downstream from the gospel. So he's talking about the same sort of thing, the same sort of category. He says, when he talks about this walk, this walk worthy of your calling, he says, with all humility and gentleness. Already we've got some familiar things. With patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I'm going to pause there. Do you guys see that huge emphasis on unity? Paul says, okay, you want to walk in a matter worthy of your calling? Give yourself to the maintenance and promotion of the unity of the church. You are one in Christ, objectively. Now, throw yourself into making the practical reality look as much like that objective status as you can. Guard that unity. Promote that unity. Have everything in your life serve the ultimate goal of guarding that. Because it is true in Christ. Make the practical outworking of it reflect the objective reality. And then we get this little hint of diversity at the end. But the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we have this unity, but we're not all the same. We all have different roles and different callings, different giftings, a different place to play, which is good. We don't need to all be the same. That wouldn't go well. You guys don't need there to be 150 of me here. It would be a very broken, messed up place because my flaws would be magnified to the nth degree and it would be such a distortion. Right? Paul talks about this in Corinthians when he talks about the church as a body. He talks about how they're, he talks about this as different body parts. Somebody's a hand, and you shouldn't say, oh, why can't I be a foot? Why can't I be a head? Like, no, a body needs all of these things. You may wish you were a hand, but it wouldn't be good if there was no foot there. Right? So there's this diversity, but this unity as well. This gets flushed out even more when we skip down to verse 11. Paul continues, and he says, and he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Right, so the beginning of this emphasis on like 
Give yourself to promoting the unity of the church. And then we, we hear this diversity of gifts God's given. And one of the things that those with teaching gifts are supposed to do is to equip the rest of the saints to minister to one another, right? I am not enough. I am not enough. You need each other if you are going to grow and to be healthy Christians. You need the ministry of every single person that God has put into your body. And I do, just as much as you do. He says those saints get equipped for the ministry. That The purpose is that we would all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. I am attached to you so that I will be brought closer. My understanding of Christ will be deepened. My faith will be strengthened. Right. And then towards the end, he talks about how when the church works properly, right? When everybody understands this and they understand that their call is to give of themselves for the church, to promote its community, to give themselves to building each other up. What does the church do when it works right? It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Right? The church is a corporate reality. It doesn't say, it says this about the church. It doesn't say this about you off by yourself. This is what the church does. This is where God has promised to grow you and how he has promised to grow you. It is in the church through the giftings that he has given the brothers and sisters that he has joined you to. That's how God says he does it. And you don't get to just make up your own way and make it work. He's the one who grows his church. He's the one who grows you. He's the one who sanctifies you. And he's going to do it the way that he has promised to do it, the way that he has designed Church, this is the beautiful thing, right? This is the beautiful thing. This is part of the reason God, the gospel works the way that it does, right? Christ freed you. He freed you. He provided everything you need to stand before the Father and be justified. There's literally nothing you need to go out there to do to take with you before the throne of grace, right? You have all of it. It's just given to you. Why? Why? Does it work that way? One, it has to because we're sinners, right? It can't work any other way. But there's another forward-looking way that it, reason it works that way as well. He frees you from this need for anything from yourself. Why? Not so you can spend your freedom to run back to your chains of sin. Not so you can spend your freedom to run yourself back into the chains of legalism and law. No, to spend your freedom for the good of his bride, for the good of his blood-bought Saints, he has freed you so that you can love. He has given everything you need so that you are free to look beyond yourself and care for his bride. That's why he's freed you. That's the freedom you have. That's what you've been given. All right? Too many times, I love football. So I use a football analogy. Football's going to be the good guy in the analogy, right? And sometimes... Christianity is like football, right? Football is a team sport. There's 11 guys that have to work in concert. They all have different jobs. They have to do different things. If an offensive lineman wants to be the quarterback and starts trying to do that while we're playing, it's going to go really badly all around, right? What you do affects me. What, you, what I do affects you. There's this interconnectedness. Right? It's a decent picture of what the life of the church looks like. But too often, we think the Christian life is like playing golf, right? It's just me out there. I'm just going for, you know, just trying to 
lower my handicap a little bit more, just trying to shave some strokes off them. It's just me out there doing my thing. All right, if we're trying to play golf when what we're actually playing is football, it's going to go really badly. It's going to go really badly. The life that flows from sound doctrine is not about you pursuing new levels of holiness, right? You leveling up your interior life. In fact, focusing on that is a great way to ensure that you won't grow. It's a great way to just snuff yourself out. You won't grow genuinely in that way. No, it's about giving yourself to the building of Christ's church, spending yourself, leveraging all that God has blessed you with for the good of this family, for the good of the people that he spent his blood to buy. This is, in fact, the way you'll actually grow. You cannot grow by focusing on yourself. It has to come about indirectly. You will grow and you will mature as you give yourself to the building up of others. That's how maturity comes. You need the body to build you up. We are so connected that we ought to be as concerned about the good of our brothers and sisters in the church as we would our very own. Your spiritual health, your spiritual well-being should be just as important to me as my own. Because frankly, if we actually believe what God's saying about the church, your well-being is my well-being. We are connected. We are tied together, and we are tied together for eternity. Your good is my good. In a way, not unlike the good of my wife is my good, and my good is her good. Right? You can't escape those effects. The church is like that. You are bonded together by the blood of Christ. Right? We affect each other. And so the good of the other is your good. Their suffering is your suffering. Their struggle is your struggle. And when we start to see it that way, when we start to take the cares and concerns and the joys of each other as seriously as we take our own, that's when the church starts really firing, right? That's what the church is supposed to look like. Now we see a church that this is the church that the gospel shapes, right? Freed from our need to earn anything from Christ, we are now free to give of ourselves to each other. That is the life that accords with sound doctrine, that flows downstream from the gospel. It is selfless and it is corporate. Now, both of these things, as I've said, were countercultural in Paul's day. And they are at least as much so today. At least as much so today. But they are countercultural in a way that our culture desperately needs. Because right? right now the focus has been in on the church. But the focus is on the church for the good of the world. Paul's very clear about this. Paul is very concerned, not just with the church, but for the Cretans who are not yet part of the church as well. Paul has the good of Crete at large in mind as he encourages this type of lifestyle. This is a counterculture that is needed because the culture that's there is one of sin and death, right? Crete needs to see an alternative, right? They need to see that there is some actual true good, not the bill of goods that they have been sold by their culture and false teachers forever. They need to see that there is another option, Paul says as much, right? He gives reasons as he goes through this of why we should conduct ourselves in certain ways. Three of the things that he says is that we don't want the word of God to be reviled, 
right? Live in this manner so that the word of God is not reviled. Listen, our lives do not make God's word any less true or authoritative or the gospel any less good. Those are objective realities. We can't diminish or hurt them in any way. But we can make them more dismissible or plausible by the way that we live, right? We bear testimony and witness to them when our life fits and makes sense in light of it. You don't live the gospel. Jesus is the only one who lived the gospel. But you can live in light of the gospel. You can live in the way that makes sense downstream from it. And as you do, that proclamation that they hear makes more sense. Like, oh, that's why, that's why that is that way. What those people do looks crazy. But if this is true, that makes sense. Why do they not focus on themselves like we all do? How can they give of themselves? Well, that makes sense if they've been given everything in Christ. Right? So there is this... So it... it makes uh, the proclamation more plausible, less dismissible. You can't just write it off as easily as the world looks on. It also says that it will put an opponent to shame because they will have nothing evil to say as we live in this way. A life like this that pursues actual objective good, when opponents and those who hate the gospel, they go to try to attack it and they try to undermine it, they're going to be left with little to work with. Right? They're going to have to really fish. They're going to have to really stretch to the point where they're, they're not going to suddenly love it, but their arguments in some ways are going to make it look even more valid. Right? When you see somebody attacking something with flimsy arguments, what does it make you think? Like, well, they, they really don't have anything. This, this is probably pretty solid. That's the best they've got. Right? So that's what he's saying. Like, have the life that flows downstream from the gospel be so in sync with what the gospel frees you to do that when... That when somebody wants to do damage to the gospel and they want to lob something in there, there's, just, there's no holes, there's no cracks, there's nothing, there's nothing to do. And so they look like fools. They look like fools when they try. And the last thing he brings up, and he talks about how we adorn the doctrine of God when we live in this way. We adorn the doctrine of God. It's a beautiful, a beautiful phrase. This is a, a phrase that gets used for like decorating a house or uh, like putting on jewelry or nice clothes. It's, it's the idea of kind of taking a space and then almost enhancing it or, or putting things into it that fit, right? Think about when you walk into a place that's like, there's been a good interior designer, right? And there's these decorate and everything fits and it works. And you're like, wow, that makes sense. That's not what, you know, versus what my room looked like when I was a teacher and I got posters that are crooked, you know, like that kind of thing, right? Like, that's when we don't live this kind of life, that's what it looks like, right? But when we live this life that's downstream from the gospel, that fits it. The life that Paul's described, it makes, it makes sense. It, it almost works as a frame for a painting, right? A, a frame for a painting. The painting's still the star. The gospel is the star, right? But if you have a good frame, it, it draws your attention in to the painting. It accents it. It accentuates it. And does it credit even an obnoxious frame that's gaudy and is distracting, that doesn't work, right? That's not fitting, right? That's a, I think that's a really good picture, the frame, right? It's fitting, it's appropriate, and so that it draws eyes and attention to what we really want them to see, which is the finished work of Jesus Christ. So guys, this thing, even though it revolves around primarily how we relate to one another, there is an apologetic 
to the way that we relate to one another. There's an apologetic to the church community. When we think about apologetics, right, defending the faith, oftentimes we think of it in terms of argumentation, right, debate, you know, breaking down arguments, that kind of thing, right? I think that's, that's where my mind initially goes. And there's time and place for that. Certainly, Titus has some work to do with that, with the false teaching that's going on. But there should be this low-grade apologetic that is always going on in the life of the church. The way that we love and live together, the way that we operate as a community, serves as this constant defense and justification that the gospel actually does what it says it does. Our selfless care for each other is absolutely 100% apologetic. Jesus said as much. In John 13, he said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What points people to the fact that we belong to Christ? What points people to the fact that the gospel is true? It's when we love each other the way that Christ loved us. When the love of Christ that we have received then flows out of us and gives to our family in Christ. It's so fascinating because this isn't even talking about our love for them. It's talking about them looking on at what's going on in here and just not being able to believe it. Like, that is weird. That's not how people interact. That's not how people engage. People don't love each other that way. Why? Why is that so powerful? Well, frankly, this kind of love, this kind of care, it's a miraculous thing. This is not what sinners do. We, by nature, our flight, we are so turned in on ourselves. The world revolves around us. All we care about is ourselves and our sin. Completely, 100%. There's nothing natural about what Paul is calling us to here. It, it is a bizarre thing. I love the way that D.A. Carson talked about it. He talks about the church and he says the church is made up of natural enemies. Natural enemies. Because when you're a sinner, everybody else is competition. When you're a sinner, everything else is competition. You are just trying to get yours because you have to. Because you are at a deficit and you are so desperate to be okay. You will do anything to anybody else to get there. So we are natural enemies in our sin. And he goes on to say, what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of that sort. Christians come together, not because they form natural bonds, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ, and they owe him a common allegiance. In light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. The church is an unnatural miraculous community. It is something that should not exist, that would not exist apart from the work of Christ. And so church, when you go into a Monday tomorrow, right, back to the grind, and you wake up and you have to spend yourself for a day, and you wonder, what should I give myself over to? First thing you need to realize is that you have all that you need in Christ. Remember what you've been given in Christ so that you're not tempted to try to earn anything before God and make a mockery of what he's done for you. So start there. 
But then as you see that freedom, realize, what is a good thing to do with that freedom? Love the people that God has loved. Love the people that, that Christ loved so much that he cloaked his divinity and humanity and died on a cross for them. Love what he loves and give yourself over to that. You will not regret this. I promise you, you will not regret this. I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, if you invest yourself, your gifts, your time in the building up of God's church and caring for the brothers and sisters of God that he has joined you to, you will not regret it. It will bear fruit because God has defined it as good. It's what he has called you to. And it is the most natural thing that flows out of the finished work of Christ for you. I love that we get to take communion now because it is such an incredible, incredible testimony to this, both to the gospel itself and to those downstream outworkings of how we relate to one another. And I'll come back and walk you guys through that in a minute. But we're going to sing. And as we sing, we're going to receive the elements. Um, it's important to remember that this meal is for Christians. This is for those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ and have been baptized into his church. Um, if that is not you, this meal is not for you. It's not because we want to withhold anything good from you. It would not do you any good. In fact, it would do you harm. And we don't want you to be confused by it. So this is the meal for Christ's church. So for those of you who are in him, as we sing, you can go receive the elements at the tables in the back. The purple cups have juice. The clear cups have wine. The bread is stacked underneath. And then after we've all been served, I'll come back up and walk us through what God does for us in this sacrament. How he nourishes and sustains our faith. And how he reminds us and keeps this in front of us weekly as we do it. So church, stand with me and let's sing and receive the elements.